Good morning. Good morning. Uh, if you are uh, online, you probably don't know what I'm doing, but uh, for those inside, if you're, if you're a little chilly and you want to get up and it's hot outside, but it's plenty cool in here, right? Yeah. So if you want to do a few jumping jacks and get your blood flowing and get warmed up, feel free to do that right now. I'll wait for you. No takers, huh? Hmm. Okay. Hey, today we are finishing our series on changes, and I have, for, for me, I have really enjoyed this. It has been a lot of fun to go through the Bible, pull out uh, characters in the Bible who had big change happen in their lives, and then step back and look at the principles involved with that and ask ourselves, how do we apply those principles to our own lives so that we can live a life of faith more effectively? And, and today is our last uh, week doing that. We're going to be looking at the lives of two men who knew Jesus personally from the New Testament. Now, I'm going to tell you that all four gospel writers uh, give us a little glimpse, a a peek into this event that we're going to be talking about. I'm going to uh, put the the scriptures up on the screen for you. If you're online, you can see them also. Uh, Well, I'm not going to. I'm hoping that uh, we're going to. And uh, so that you can read it because I'm I'm going to give it to you. I'm going to kind of I'm going to kind of condense it and give it to you from my perspective. I want to encourage you to go and read all four of them. The first one is from Matthew, Matthew chapter 27, verses 57 to 61. You can write those down apparently because I didn't, must have forgot to do a slide on them. Matthew 27, verses 57 to 61. Mark 15, so Mark 15, 42 to 47. Luke 25, 50 to 56. And John chapter 19 verses 38 to 42. So you can look up this story and read it in all of them. Now, this morning I am going to admit that I have taken a little bit of liberty as I share this with you. The liberty that I've taken is to give us a picture of what I think is between the lines. Here's my commitment. The principles and conclusions we arrive at will be absolutely solidly scripturally based and, and, and are, will in fact be the same ones that Jesus taught. So you can check them out and that's one of the reasons that I also give you all of that scripture because these principles and this concept matters greatly to us. And so my hope is to bring it alive to you this morning in a way that, um, that you won't forget. So here's the story, the event actually. It was the worst day of Joe's life. At least he couldn't think of any other day that came close to this particular day that gave him the feelings he had on this particular day. He just couldn't believe. He couldn't believe that it had come down to this. I mean, he had heard the rumors and all, you know, and he thought, but he thought that, yeah, there might be something to him, but he never really believed they would actually carry it out. And by the time he heard all about it, he didn't have the time or the opportunity or, or maybe the guts to do anything about it, and so he hadn't. It had, it, it, I mean, it, truthfully, it had probably been too late by then anyway. Or would it have been? Joe thought about his station in life. He had managed by careful planning and hard work to earn an important position significant prestige, and a considerable amount of wealth. In fact, he was considered a rich man. But what did it matter now? I mean, now that he had finally come to believe in, and what he had finally come to believe in was destroyed. 
now that what he had secretly supported was gone. Now that his newfound faith was shattered. His faith in Jesus Christ, which he had come to be certain of, was suddenly in pieces because Jesus was dead. And he hadn't lifted a finger to stop it. He'd done nothing to keep it from happening. His relationship and belief in Jesus, along with that of his friend Nick, had been in the shadows, in the background. And you and I, we would understand it. I mean, we would understand that because we would understand his fear of the controversy and consequences of making his faith public. After all, if they made their newfound belief public, it could cost them their jobs and even perhaps their standing in the community. So even though he was part of the Jewish ruling council along with Nick, neither one of them had done anything to keep Jesus from being executed. And now, he was dead. And he had died the most horrible death possible. Crucifixion. The Roman-inspired excruciating death resulting from being nailed or hung on a cross. But this day, this particular day, a new boldness had come over Joe. And, and, and he was past the point of caring who knew that he'd become a follower, a disciple of Jesus. And so with that boldness, that encouragement in, in his own heart, he went right to the guy who had actually pronounced sentence on Jesus, a guy named Pilate, and he asked Pilate for permission to give Jesus a proper burial. And Pilate, Pilate actually gave the permission. And so he and his friend Nick, Nicodemus, arrived together. He brought the linens, and Nicodemus brought 75 pounds of spices. They hurried because it was sundown that was coming, and, and the Sabbath actually started on sundown. And to keep Jewish law, the burial had to be done before the Sabbath officially started. As they neared the cross, he was sickened, repulsed by what he saw, what he smelled, what he heard. The flies buzzing around the dead bodies. It was almost more than his mind could absorb. The vital, alive, vibrant body of Jesus, who he had seen just a few days before, had been turned into a lifeless, battered, beaten bag of flesh, flesh and bones that was hanging grotesquely from the cross. The sight, the smell, the sounds, the reality of it all hit him and Nicodemus with a wave of nausea, and they fell to their knees. And there in the dirt, trying not to wretch, they wept. They wept for Jesus. They wept for the pain that he had endured. They wept for a world that would do this to him. And they wept for themselves. For all 
the things they didn't say, the things they didn't do. They wept for all the times they stayed in the background, hiding in the shadows, protecting their own prestige and position. They wept because they had abandoned him in his most dire hour of need. They approached the cross with hesitation. It was an unpleasant, grisly task that was in front of them, but it it needed to be done. And it was then that the scholar, the one who had memorized most of, of God's word, Nicodemus, it was then, it was then that he began to speak. He said, Joe, Joe, I, I remember, I remember the night that I went and saw Jesus privately. And that night he said about himself, as Moses lifted up the serpent in the wilderness, so must the Son of Man be lifted up, that whoever believes in him may have eternal life. Looking up at the cross, Nicodemus wondered aloud, I wonder if this is what he meant, that he would be lifted up, hung up, like the serpent was. And when the people looked at the serpent, they actually were saved. And that that if people looked at Jesus and believed in him, they would actually be saved and have eternal life. As gently as possible, they began to remove Jesus' body from the cross. Tenderly, they laid it on the ground. And then their emotions overran them again as they saw up close the damage that the Romans had done to him. His head was punctured, bloody, from the crown of thorns that they had pressed down onto his head. His face was beaten, swollen, discolored, almost almost beyond recognition. His arms were pulled out of the sockets, completely dislocated out of his off of his shoulders, and his back and the ribs were exposed, lacerated. He'd been whipped so much it exposed muscle and tendon and tissue and cartilage and even bone. Nicodemus looked down at Jesus, and suddenly the words of a prophet Isaiah that he had written long ago about a coming Messiah flooded into Nicodemus's mind, and he quietly spoke what he had memorized about the Messiah. But many were amazed when they saw him. His face was so disfigured, he seemed hardly human. And from his appearance, one would scarcely know he was a man. Joe turned to look at Nicodemus, his eyes wide as he remembered the prophecy himself. And he looked down at the blood that had rubbed off on his hands, his arms, and even some on his robe. And and he continued quoting from the prophet Isaiah. There was nothing beautiful or majestic about his appearance. Nothing to attract us to him. He was despised and rejected. A man of sorrows acquainted with the deepest grief. Joe did some quick calculations in his mind, and he realized this year actually marked 700 years since Isaiah had prophesied that God would send a Savior, a Messiah, that would save their people from their sins. He had often wondered, what would this person look like? What would they be like? What would be happening around at that time? 
He believed the prophecy would be fulfilled at some time, and he'd been waiting for it, as all the Jewish religious leaders believed. But who would fulfill it? By whom? And when? They continued cleaning Jesus as best they could and applied the spices and the strips of linen. It was Nicodemus who continued quoting, his voice full of wonder. We turned our backs on him and looked the other way. He was despised, and we did not care. Blood rushed to Joe's face as he realized that loving Jesus in private and not standing up for him in public was another way of turning our backs on him and looking the other way. Nicodemus came to the same conclusion, and sharing Joe's guilt, his eyes down, he continued to quote from the prophet Isaiah. Yet it was our weakness he carried. It was our sorrows that weighed him down. And we thought his troubles were a punishment from God, a punishment for his own sins. Oh man, the prophecies of Isaiah were making sense to Joe like never before. And then as he began to prepare things with Jesus and, and continued to clean him up, his hands touched the wound on his side where the Roman spear had pierced him and left a gaping wound. And immediately the next words of the prophet Isaiah came to his mind and, and Joe blurted them out, but he was pierced for our rebellion, crushed for our sins. He was beaten so we could be made whole. He was whipped so we could be healed. Was this God's plan all along? How could it have been? How could he have been so concerned about his own reputation, about his own safety? What had compelled him to put his own comfort and career in front of standing up for Jesus Christ? Nicodemus took up quoting where Joe had left off. All of us like sheep have strayed away. We have left God's path to follow our own. Yet the Lord laid on him the sins of us all. Really, Joe thought? Really, could that be? Could his sin have actually been laid on Jesus while he was on that cross? Did Jesus cover even, even his most recent sin of deserting him? Was that covered too of abandoning him? And, and, and all of his sins, all of them, were they covered by that? And then he realized that Nicodemus was continuing to quote, unjustly condemned, he was led away. No one cared that he died without descendants, that his life was cut short in midstream, that he was struck down for the rebellion of my people. He had done no wrong and never deceived anyone. Nicodemus stopped and looked at Joe with astonishment and said, Joe, Joe, after Jesus, after Jesus told me about Moses and the serpent, he said, he said that God loved people so much that he gave his only son, that whoever believes in him would not perish but have eternal life. And then he went on, Joe, and said that God did not send his son into the world to condemn the world, but that the world might be saved through him. 
Suddenly, that comprehension came to Joe, and hot tears of gratitude splashed down his face, and he said, John the Baptist was right. Jesus is the Lamb of God who's come to take away the sin of the world. Jesus had paid his sin debt. Jesus, his Savior, his friend, his Lord, had paid the price for him. And those hot tears of, uh, of gratitude and humiliation became tears of peace that washed over him as he began to understand the grace that God had extended him, that favor that he did not deserve. And he said over a lump in his throat, Nicodemus, we're going to bury him in my tomb. In my tomb. Well, it was good that the tomb was not far away. So as the sun began to set, they hurried to the tomb. The tomb that Joe had purchased for his own eventual use. It was known as the tomb of Joe, Joseph of Arimathea. And that's where they laid him. And as they lovingly laid him down, Nicodemus remembered another thing from the prophet Isaiah. And a grin began to slowly break out over his face. His eyes glinted with the fading evening light inside of the tomb. And as he looked at Joseph, he quoted once more from the prophet Isaiah. But he was buried like a criminal. He was put in a rich man's grave. He pointed at Joseph and said it again. He was put in a rich man's grave. It was as if Jesus had graciously, graciously given them that verse. As they looked at each other, the same thought crossed both of their minds. They had been part of fulfilling prophecy. Oh, this truly was their most heroic hour. They had come to understand that grace, that great grace that was born out of God's incredible love for them. They'd come out of the shadows, out of the background, to befriend their Savior. The Savior whose amazing grace covered their sin. They were so, they were changed. They were changed from the inside out. They would never go back to the way they had been before. And that change would mark them as followers of Jesus. People would see the love of Jesus in them they realized it's God's grace that sets our faith apart. Oh, they saw it. They saw God's grace given to them and they knew that's what sets our faith apart. They came out of the tomb and with great effort, the two of them rolled the rock across the entrance. And then slowly in the fading light, they solemnly began to walk home. They would never be the same. They were changed. They would never hide in the shadows again. They would never be ashamed of who their Savior was again. They had truly become new creatures changed, changed by the grace that Jesus Christ 
demonstrated to them. Both Nicodemus and Joseph of Arimathea had found out some things about God's grace that was so important. And there are things that are so important to you and I too. They apply to us today as much as they did to Joseph of Arimathea and Nicodemus then. They realized that God's grace means complete forgiveness of our sins. Complete forgiveness. In Acts chapter 10, verse number 43, Peter was saying to Gentiles, people who were not Jews, he was telling them, to him, to Jesus, all the prophets bear witness. In other words, everything all the prophets talked about was about Jesus. And they bear witness that everyone who believes in him receives forgiveness of sins through his name. Oh, our sins are forgiven. It's God's grace that sets our faith apart. And God's grace is a gift. It's a gift that we do not deserve. Paul would write to the Christians in Rome in Romans 3, verse 23 and 24, for all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. They've sinned. We've all sinned. So we need something to help us get past that. So we've sinned and fall short of the glory of God and are justified. In other words, we're okay before God. How? By His grace, by the grace of Jesus as a gift through the redemption that is in Christ Jesus. So friends, listen, we all need it, but we cannot earn it. We all need it, but we cannot buy it. You cannot pay for it and, and, and possess it that way. We all need it, but we can do nothing to deserve it. We can't. On our own, we cannot deserve it. God's grace is a gift that we do not deserve. The only thing we can do is accept it, is receive it, is say, I, I take that gift. I take that gift for my own. And, and thank goodness, no matter what you have done, no matter how bad you are, the grace of God is greater still. His grace is not limited. It's not limited. It doesn't fall short for anybody. God's grace has no limit to it. Romans 5.20 says, God's law was given so that all people could see how sinful they were. In other words, Paul is saying the only reason that God put the law in there, the only reason the Ten Commandments are in there, the only reason the 613 Mosaic laws are there is so you and I would have no question and no doubt that we are sinful and that we cannot do it on our own. We can't accomplish, we can't live according to the way God wants us to. God wanted that to be so clear that anybody who thought I'm good enough to make it on their own would be ashamed when they would realize how far from that they actually are. That's the reason for the law of God. And he says, so people could see how sinful they were. But as people sinned more and more, some of you might fit into that second more, more than the first more, more and more, God's wonderful grace became more abundant. Isn't that great? God's wonderful grace became more abundant. In other words, there is nothing any of us have done, any of us have done, that cannot be covered by God's grace when we accept it and receive it. We cannot earn it. You do not deserve it. It's God's love for us. Only His love for us. This, the reasons He's given it to us. It's God's grace. 
that sets our faith apart. Now, the Apostle Paul, he had been a murderer. He'd actually been a murderer. And he acknowledged, and that's one of the reasons he was so, he emphasized God's grace so much because he knew how badly he needed it. And he was determined that you and I should know the value and the generosity of God in giving us God's love for us, in giving us God's grace. There's a man named John Newton who was a slave trader. John Newton was not just a slave trader, he was also a murderer. So like Paul, except that he also traded in slaves. He knew how to capture people, black people in Africa, put them in bondage, and then transport them to America where they were sold as slaves. Many of them didn't live through the ordeal. The conditions were horrendous. And so Newton actually oversaw the death and degradation of other human beings. But then, ha, then the grace of God got a hold of him. He realized how bad he needed God's grace. He realized there was nothing he could do to deserve it or earn it. He realized that if anybody deserved to die uh, and, and go to hell, it would be him. And he knew it. But he accepted the grace that God offers him through Jesus Christ and realized that when Jesus was hanging on that cross, the sins of John Newton hung there with him. That he had paid the price even for John's sin. It changed him so much from the inside out that he became a new creature in Jesus Christ and ultimately became a pastor. It's crazy how many people with weird, terrible backgrounds have become pastors. <laughs> John didn't just become a pastor, he became a guy who, a composer, and he would write music and write lyrics in, in, an, in an incredible, amazing, almost impossible twist of God's humor to me, God's sense of humor. He wrote lyrics that would later become the most popular song of English-speaking black people in the entire world. The song, Amazing Grace. Yeah, yeah. Almost seems impossible, doesn't it? That the guy with the same name who was trading slaves could write a song like that? The guy with the same name who abused them and had the same DNA as the guy who would write the words, these incredible words of amazing grace. How sweet the sound that saved a wretch like me. Oh, he understood himself. I once was lost, but now I am found. Was blind, but now I see. T'was grace that taught my heart to fear. And, and grace my fears relieved. How precious did that grace appear. The hour I first believed. Believed what? Believed that his sins were on that cross with Jesus. And Jesus had paid the price for John Newton's sins and said, I'm making you a child of God if you'll just accept the price I paid. Oh, God's grace, friends, means the debt has been paid. Paul would write in Ephesians 2, 4-6, but God is so rich in mercy and He loved us so much that even though we were dead because of our sins, He gave us life when, we, when He raised Christ from the dead. 
He went on to say, it's only by God's grace that you have been saved. The debt has already been paid. Jesus' part is done. He's already paid for all of your sins, past, present, and even as crazy as it seems, future. He's done it. He's paid the price for you. God's grace is what sets our faith apart. Apart from what? Apart from other faiths. It is a unique faith. It is a one-of-a-kind faith. This preposterous, ridiculous idea that seems to be circulating now about all roads lead to the same place or all religions are basically the same. Nothing could be further from the truth, friends. Nothing could be further from the truth. And stating it or believing it indicates a pretty large lack of intellect, in my own opinion. Now, I'm not trying to, trying to be harsh, but it really does. Because Christianity is so different from every other kind of faith because of God's grace. God's mercy and grace and love for you and I. There are a number of things that are unique to Christianity that way. As, give me, I'll give you a couple of examples. In Hinduism, there are many gods, but they are impersonal. In Christianity, there is one God, and he is very personal. In fact, he states that the reason he created you is because he wants a relationship with you, a personal relationship with you, you and him, private private and public, you and him, but very personal, unique, that your relationship with him would be unique from my relationship with him or from his relationship with him or from her relationship with him. Our, relation, our relationship with him was so personal, it's unique that way. In Buddhism, there is no forgiveness and there is no divine intervention. In Christianity, it's only by God's divine intervention that forgiveness is offered to us and given to us. And all we have to do is accept it. In Islam, men earn salvation or earn righteousness before God by doing good works. And the good works for the extreme Islam is, is are killing the infidels, those who don't believe the same way they do. And yet in Christianity, we gain righteousness not by the works that we do, and we gain eternal life not by the effort we put out, but by confessing our unrighteousness and acknowledging that our sins are covered by Christ's sacrifice and His grace for them. So I would suggest that if you want a religion that makes you look good, makes you look good, Christianity is a lousy choice. But if you want one that's real and actually gives you joy in admitting how bad you are because it demonstrates how great God is, how gracious He is, how forgiving He is, how loving He is, it is. It's the only one. It's the only one. But to receive God's grace, you must know you need it and ask for it. John writes in 1 John 1, 9, if we confess our sins... He is faithful and just to forgive us our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. How much unrighteousness? How much? Ah, oh, all unrighteousness. He is faithful and just to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. 
John Newton, when he was 82 years old and blind shortly before his death, he said, my memory is nearly gone. But I remember two things, that I am a great sinner and that Christ is a great Savior. Isn't that great? Wow. God's grace is what sets our faith apart. God's grace to you. God's grace to me. Because He loves you so incredibly much. Because He loves me that much. So the question really comes down to have we done anything about it? If you've already accepted Jesus Christ as your Savior, here's what you should be doing about this today. Giving praise. Giving thanks. Thanks, God, that you did for me what you did for me. Thank you, Lord. That's why, that's why Paul and, and Peter and, 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 and the psalmist would write so many praise to God. God, you're so incredible. You're so amazing. Why? Because I'm not, and you have, you, you've saved me. You've cleansed me from all unrighteousness. And if you haven't acted on that, I would encourage you to do that. You can do what John Newton did. You can do what Joseph and Nicodemus did. You can do what Cliff has done and confess your sins to Jesus and ask for his forgiveness and then thank him that just by doing that and saying, I receive it, Lord, I receive it. Thanks for it. Bring it on. That you have then, you've then received from him forgiveness of all, all, all your sins. Even those you think no one else knows about. Even those that only he and you know about. You've got forgiveness for them all. And that, my friend, should have us coming out of the background. That, my friend, should have us standing strong for who our Savior is. That should have us not be embarrassed about the fact that we are Christ's followers. We're His disciples. We recognize Him as our Lord and Savior. And we live for Him because of what He's done for us. Amen? Let's pray. Lord, thank You so much, Lamb of God that you are led to the slaughter, that you take away the sin of the world. Thank you, Lord Jesus, for being pierced for our sins, crushed for our iniquities. Thank you that your blood was there cleansing, and in your wounds there is healing. May your love overwhelm us, and may we come out from behind any shadows and live for you, regardless of what others say, regardless of the consequences we might have to deal with, because we are so thankful for the grace, the love, the forgiveness that you have given us. Thank you for that. In Jesus' name, amen. Hey, we're going to uh, continue to worship the Lord right now and um, sing a couple of more songs And, and uh, before you're dismissed. As we do that, I'd like you to stand and receive his blessing that he allows me the privilege to be able to give you as we go from here. May the Lord bless you and keep you. May the Lord make his face shine upon you and be gracious to you. May the Lord turn his face towards you to give you his peace 
and his strength so that you can live your life as he is calling you to do. In Jesus' name, and all the people said, amen, amen.